The Emperor released the Edict of Worms on May 26, 1521, officially declaring Luther and his teachings outlawed. Only three weeks after Luther disappeared while traveling through the Thuringian Forest, with the release of the Edict, the Reformation entered a new and dangerous period. It was most dangerous for those who proclaimed the gospel in areas like modern-day Belgium, where the leadership was most loyal to both the Pope and the Emperor. In areas like this, the leaders were willing to attack Luther's teachings vigorously and ruthlessly, using the full force of the law. When the monks at the Augustinian Monastery in Antwerp, Belgium, openly proclaimed Luther's teachings, they found themselves opposed by the most powerful forces in the empire. Most of them recanted, but three, Henry Vose, John Esch, and Lampertus Thorne, refused. Their refusal resulted in their martyrdom. I'm Mike Yeagley. And I'm Evan Gertner, and this is Grace on Tap. Grace on Tap is a podcast dedicated to a discussion on the history and theology of the Lutheran Reformation, all over nice cold beer. The Emperor didn't much like Luther's Here I Stand speech at go, the Diet of Worms. Go figure. Go figure. And as a matter of fact, Luther's defiant answer to the Emperor's representative inspired the Emperor to write his own proclamation of faith and the Edict of Worms. So here's a little flavor of the Edict as the Emperor recounts Luther's comments on the uh, the Council of Constance, which declared John Jan Hus a heretic. He said... The said Luther's polluted mouth, despising and demolishing the council, has scandalized the universal church. Then the emperor continues, but he rejects and refuses whatever articles were approved by the council, protesting like a madman that if John Huss was once heretic, Luther is proud to be ten times more heretic. And he seeks so much after new things to the perdition of mankind that he has not written anything however truthful it may appear, that does not contain pestilences or the sting of death. Uh, to put an end to the numberless and endless errors of said Martin, let us say that it seems that this man, Martin, is not a man but a demon in the appearance of a man, clothed in religious habit to be better able to deceive mankind. And then near the end of the edict, Emperor Charles states, For this reason, we forbid anyone from this time forward to dare either by words or by deeds to receive, defend, sustain, or favor the said Martin Luther. On the contrary, we want him to be apprehended and punished as a notorious heretic as he deserves, to be brought personally before us or to be securely guarded until those who have captured him inform us, whereupon we will order the appropriate manner of proceedings against the said Luther. Those who will help in his capture will be rewarded generously for their good work. So in this episode, we're going to be taking a look at the way things progressed in the early 1520s. By 1522, the two sides, they're pretty well defined, Mike. And and so Luther has clearly stated that papal teachings were invalid if they were not biblically supported. Meanwhile, the Pope and the Emperor agreed that Luther was a dangerous heretic who must be stopped. So uh, now I, I was just thinking how we have spent some episodes really focused on Luther where he's at at the Warburg and how he travels back to Wittenberg. But Luther inspires others uh, to give them the confidence to look at the scriptures, see what the scriptures say, and have trust and confidence in how the Holy Spirit is at work in these scriptures to illuminate the work of Jesus. Yeah, and you know, every leader in Germany in this period, 1520, 21, 22, 23, 
uh, has to make a decision on where they're going to stand in, in all this. They're, they're, you know, are they going to agree with Luther that, that the scriptures can be plainly read? Or are they going to go with the Pope that you must rely on papal guidance to read And there'll the be some who wait to make their decision based on the political maneuverings of the time period. And there are going to be others that, uh, regardless of the politics of it, are going to go forward. And they are going to experience the scandal uh, of what Luther's doing before others, because they've kind of stuck their necks out there. And, and you know, and the thing is, is that's just the leaders. Now, if you're a monk or a priest, you know, or a bookseller, <laughs> bookseller, yeah, we'll get into that in a minute. But if you're, if you're, especially, you know, somebody who is held responsible for understanding this stuff and teaching it, you're responsible to God for what you're teaching. And so, you know, the the, the stakes are even higher for for the monks and priests and so forth. In that era, they're well educated. They're able to read all of Luther's writings in both the German and Latin. The writing in Latin allows the text to spread far beyond the German lands because Latin was essentially the required language of any academic work in Europe. And then these guys are all they're trained in rhetoric. They're they're trained in uh, in tools of logic. Uh, and so they can evaluate Luther's writings directly. If Luther says something, they can go back to the scriptures. They can read that. They can read the Greek. They can they, go back to the church fathers he references yeah. or those that he disagrees with. So in the last episode, we briefly mentioned Fabricius Capito. He was a, a representative of the Archbishop of Mainz, who was a strong adversary of Luther. He had even recruited some students in Wittenberg to be a spy, to be spies. Oh, yeah, yeah. And so, you know, he wasn't... But eventually... Uh, After know, listening to Luther, yeah, he, so he goes to goes to Wittenberg to hear what Luther has to say and how he's going to handle the the riots, the, the chaos, the chaos that's happening in there. Uh, he 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 actually starts getting in line with Luther, he becomes a strong supporter. Yeah, and, and so uh, it's, and he's not the only one that after um, you know stopping uh, stop paying attention just to the propaganda. Uh, that the Pope or the Emperor is transmitting around Europe about Luther. And, and those who actually stop and read and, and look at what Luther's writings, they, they start to come around. Yeah, you have Urbanus Regius. I don't know how to pronounce this. But uh, Urbanus Regius, he's the cathedral preacher in Augsburg. And he engaged in an open dis- disagreement with his superiors about the validity of indulgences. Martin Busser, along with Fabius Capito, came to the defense of a preacher in Strasbourg who was advocating for Luther's reading of the Book of Romans. So you have all these, again, you have all these intellectuals, the priests, the monks, the the, the preachers that, that are out there and they're having to take sides in this. And a good number of them are finding themselves agreeing with Luther but not all of them are in Luther friend, work under Luther-friendly leaders. And that puts them in very... So those reformers who worked in areas uh, where they were afforded some level of protection by their princes, uh, you know, for them, they can go forward without much risk. Yeah, but there are plenty who don't have that protection. In 1521, Duke George of Saxony, Elector Frederick's cousin, the head of Duke of Saxony, he cut off the head of a bookseller, Johann Herget, uh, for selling Luther's writings. Now, it's funny, you know, Johann Herget is not generally considered the first martyr, although he was the first one to die uh, for for this that I could find. Uh, but the first martyrs are... Uh, Two Augustinian monks yeah, from uh, Antwerp. There's Heinrich Vos or Henry Vos, uh, Johann Esch or John Esch, 
these these guys are, are generally considered the first martyrs. And, you know, this is where, uh, for those of you listening in your car with your children, you may want to know that some of the details coming up. Yeah, this, this is not a very, we're going to, we're going to dance around a lot of the most gruesome stuff, but it's still not a very nice story. Uh, so there's, um, in some ways the, their story is unique since they were the first martyrs. But uh, on the other hand, it's important to know that they were only the first. There were others came after. There them. were plenty. Who there came were many after. martyrs in the 1520s as the Edict of Worms began to be enforced. And what happened to uh, to to Vos and and Esch uh, really played out over and over again through this era. So their story becomes uh, an illustration of what others are going to experience as well. So to understand what was going on and how they got to the where they are, let's go back. Back to 1518 at the Heidelberg Disputation. The Pope has first declared that Luther's ideas on indulgences were incorrect. Uh, John Staupitz, Luther's father confessor and the vicar general of the Augustinian Congregation of Observant Convents, um, Luther's boss, asked Luther to discuss several issues like sin, free will, and grace. The <laughs> expectation is that these weren't going to be controversies. <laughs> yeah, that's sort of... Sin, free will, and grace. Yeah, that, those, those end up being the very core of the, of the issue, but that's, that's fine. You know, but, uh, so the Antwerp Augustinian Monastery and the Wittenberg Augustinian Monastery were members of this congregation of observant convents, and so representatives from Antwerp uh, were there as long as well as the representatives from Wittenberg there in Heidelberg. Yeah, so so you have representatives from both monasteries there in Heidelberg at the Heidelberg Disputation. They couldn't find any record of which monks were there, but obviously whoever was there brought from them, Antwerp would from, have brought these ideas back to their monastery. Yeah, yeah. So Luther's teachings over the course from 1518. Up until 1522, 1523, when this all comes down, those those are taking hold. Those five years, these and they're they're watching all this, and they're they're finding that they're agreeing with Luther. And Stolpitz had declared that Wittenberg University was the stadium general for the Augustinian Congregation of Observant Convents. So what, what does that, that mean, Mike? Well, as far as I could tell, this is that the Wittenberg University was the official learning center. The learned institution. So if you have an Augustinian observant monk in this area that needs more school, they are going to, by default, be sent to Wittenberg to go to school. Okay, so they're constantly being sent to, to Wittenberg to, to really learn from Luther and his his friends. So this became the 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 school for the Augustinian monks um, to, and, to and, learn. And so... You know, in my the preferred reading, provider. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So in my reading, they they could find records of monks from Antwerp being registered as students at the at Wittenberg University, which was sort of interesting. So this is you can see how they're they're sort so of. So this is going to take hold in Antwerp, and now Belgium is where Emperor Charles V's uh, kind of family headquarters are. This is. Headquarters central for the opposition to Luther. Yeah, so these guys are are really they they don't know it yet, but they're 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 in very dangerous territory. So now, so as Luther's teachings begin to take hold at the Augustinian monastery in Antwerp, the Augustinian monk uh, Jacobus Propositus publicly supported Luther and even preached against the indulgences being sold in Antwerp. So the, at the University of Louvain, which we've heard about before, this is this is the university that was almost always the first to say Luther was a heretic. 
their their name has come up over and over again where they they really did not like Luther right from the very start. The theologians who worked there, uh, who were teachers there. They saw the change. They, yeah. they knew what his teachings meant. They knew what his teachings meant and they were they were firmly against it. And so the theologians there are working very, very hard to to stop this Augustinian Mark jo- Jacobus. Propositus. Propositus. So I'll say that five times fast. So I, I have trouble with these. So words. now with the Edict of Worms, uh, they have permission to prosecute and not just write against, but now to actually use the authority of the state to prosecute uh, those uh People in their area that are supporting Luther. So Propositus actually does eventually, under the pressure of the, the Edict of Worms and the, the, the authorities, he does recant, says he admits his errors, and and moves on. But that's not the end. We'll talk about what happens to so him So before we get to the gruesome stuff, let's take our beer break. Yeah. We, you, you found something very interesting here, Mike. So this this is uh, uh, from Old Fecker, Bitter Old Fecker Brewery. Uh, this is a beer called Jet. Uh, Bitter Old Fecker is a really interesting brewery. It's based in Chelsea, Michigan. It's, it's a, a small batch brewery. Small batch brewery started by Nathan Huckel. Uh, and I hope I'm, I hope I'm pronouncing His great grandparents, uh, were bootleggers in Detroit running booze from Canada. I also ran a blind pig speakeasy out of their basement in Detroit. So the, the Detroit police, the, including the police chief were were clientele, so they, they didn't really have to worry about being you know hauled in. And her great his great grandmother made beer in her kitchen for the guys at the brickyard where she worked. So uh, now Nathan's grandfather Cecil Fecker, uh, he's a rail worker. He worked for Ford Motor. Uh, and in, in the write up they they have they call him uh, Ford employee turned weird angry recluse. <laughs> It's a great person to build a business upon, apparently. Yeah, he left Detroit for Hillsdale uh, to start farming. Cecil started brewing in the early 80s, naming beers after the things that inspired the recipes and included ingredients he grew or foraged. And Uh, after some frustration with trying to break into brewing, uh, Nathan started Bitter Old Fecker, working under Cecil as an apprentice. uh, So during the startup process, uh, Nathan took a job as an assistant brewer at Grizzly Peak Brewing Company. But he left after 18 months to work on Bitter Old Fecker exclusively. So th- what they do is that the, uh, Nathan and his grandfather, Cecil, produce these high-gravity, bold beers brewed in a rustic style. No that, automatic equipment. Kettles, mash tarns, or nothing. Everything's stirred by hand in a brewery uh, that can literally produce beer without the use of electricity. All beer are barrel-aged and include non-traditional foraged and locally sourced ingredients. All malt and hops are 100% U.S. grown. And uh, the first one was called Stutter. This one's called Jet. This one's called Jet. So, uh, and, and we're also sharing this beer with Josh because this beer is how strong? I, you know, I couldn't find that. But it's, it's, it's potent. Now, this one is sort and of... And it's also because it's a big bottle. It's a big bottle, and it has a number. This is, this is bottle number 1,101 out of 1,332. So, uh, and the name Jet came from Cecil's dog, uh, Cecil's dog. Uh, many farm dogs out there uh, can seem slow stretch of the days, lazing in the shade on a family porch. But Jet uh, does not live that life. Uh, Jeff, a rescued dog, uh, is... Uh, 
one that kind of lives with a little quick to fight, sink his fangs in any sort of intruder's backside kind of life. <laughs> he's he's not a very friendly dog. So, but he loves Cecil. So that's that's what's important. So they they get along. Now this beer is dark. It is uh, has a smoky flavor to it, um, and it is um, through its kind of uh, flavor. It, it's it's got some haze to it. There's nothing pretty about it. No, no, it's not a pretty beer, but it's it's delicious. It really does have... It has a lot of flavor to it. A lot of flavor. Flavors I am not used to tasting. Yeah, the smoke is one flavor in it. Yeah. From the smoked peppercorns and uh, and, and such. And then um, just to see it swirl in the glass is... It's just got a whole different look than most beers. I, I have not had a beer like this, I think, ever. This is this is a really good beer. Um, it, it's It's got... I don't know. It's got a whole different flavor to it, though. You can feel it on your on your tongue. Uh, yeah, I, I, I feel like know. maybe some sausage and some crackers with it would be good. Yeah, uh, we'll have to work on our um, accoutrements. Yeah, we'll have to bring in some. It's it's got sort of a, a tang to it that, uh, and it's funny. It's got this like, it's like it it hits your lips, it hits your tongue, and and it explodes with flavor. Yes, and then it sort of dissipates. Mm-hmm. It's it, and there's not a much of an aftertaste. No, th- not like the the beer we had just in the previous episode, which had a lot of sugars, uh, the honey and the maple syrup that would kind of hang out in the mouth. This doesn't. Yeah, so a beer advocate says we cracked the the top of this beautiful bomber hand label with limited edition 1042 of 1132. Like I, I said, we're at uh, 11. Uh, 1101 out of 1332 um pouring into our oversized taste okay and then it talks about uh, 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 so this is a review that we're reading from now it says the look is thick and majestic the color of burnt tires with a creamy head of mocha standing two fingers tall yeah this is a really dark beer uh it's it's like when i was pouring it i, I thought i was pouring motor oil this is this is really it's really dark and thick the really vanilla. Good. That's the I think one of the flavors. That's really yeah, strong yeah, you're right. And then uh, flavor, dustiest, uh, uh, bitterest, raw, dark ch- cocoa. Yeah, dark uh, co- Now this is one I can taste the cocoa. I can too. Yes, Th- this one you can oh, taste I can't, that. I can't. <laughs> <laughs> and then it says there's banana esters in it as well. I I taste the banana. Yeah, yeah. Um, this is this is it's just a really interesting beer. I really like this one. Um, Another flavor that's listed as wood lacquer. How, how does one know that the flavor of wood lacquer? Have you tasted uh, previous uh, wood lacquers? I, I, and I go, yes, this does have the flavor. How does one know that? I, I, I don't know. Uh, I, I think I, beer reviewers uh, sometimes make it up. If, if he's tasting wood lacquer, I think he needs to get into a meeting. That's, <laughs> that's So. All right. We've talked about this beer a lot. <laughs> okay. Let's, let's. So the Catholic authorities, they've convinced Propositus uh, to recant. But he's not the only Lutheran at the Augustinian Monastery in Antwerp. They don't all recant. So in July of 1522, the Bishop of Kemmerich had all the monks, monks thrown in the jail of Vilvorden uh, near Brussels for espousing Lutheran views. Uh, they threatened the monks to get them to recant Luther's teachings. And they brought in these professors from the university, along with the inquisitor from Cologne, uh, Mainz and Trier. And uh, he, this was uh, Jacob von Hoogstraten. Uh, he was a professor of theology at the University of Cologne. And, and so Hoogstraten threatened the monks with burning at the stake if they did not recant okay. Luther. And this is not an idle threat. No, and they all did, except for three of them. Lampertus Thorn, Heinrich Vos, and Johannes Esch. These three monks were asked these three questions. 
And as you are listening to this, uh, Grace on Tap, I want you to think about what your own answers would be to these questions. What's the first question, Mike? What is your belief? And the monks replied, we believe the 12 articles of the Christian faith, the biblical books and apostolic writings of the Holy Church, but not the church you believe in. So they're saying the Apostles' Creed, the 12 articles of the Christian faith. They're talking about the Apostles' Creed there. Okay, okay. And then, of course, the biblical books and the apostolic writings, which... And then, and but that addendum, but not the same church as you guess. Yeah. And then the second question is, don't you believe in the statutes and councils of the old fathers? And their response is, as long as they are not contrary to scripture, we believe them. And then the third question is, don't you believe that it is deadly and unforgivable to break the Pope's and the father's commandments? We believe that God's commandments and not human statutes save or condemn. So, yeah, those are those are pretty good answers. You know? And so when they're told that it was forbidden to read Luther, Heinrich Vos replied that the Pope was going beyond his authority since Scripture commands us to test the spirits. And there he's going to 1 John chapter 4. So he says we are reading Luther so that we can test Luther. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and they also say, and we're reading the Pope. So we can test the Pope. So we can test the Pope. And and they say, when I test the Pope against Scripture, and I test Luther against Scripture, Luther wins. And, and so then the Inquisitor decided that they could not be convinced to recant. He had them transferred to Brussels, where they were placed in prison to await their execution. So the authorities there decide to keep their execution date secret because they don't want too big of a crowd uh, from outside of Brussels. They don't want... They don't mind if Brussels people came there. They just don't want it publicized in such a period of advance that people from all over Europe could arrive. Yeah, and they don't they don't want a circus. Uh, and so, so about a year uh, they were in prison for about a year, and uh, they were continued to be interrogated by the Levant theologians, and they were sort of put on trial uh, for heresy. At 11 a.m. on July 1st, 1523, Heinrich Vos was the first to be brought out in his full priestly garb. So Vos knelt at this makeshift altar, and the superior of the Mennonite monks gave a sermon. And then Vos was ceremonial defrocked by the bishop. So they, they, he's been in prison. He hasn't been dressed as a priest. He's just been dressed as a prisoner. For the purposes of the ceremony, they put all of the clothing of a priest back on him. They parade him out to the altar, and then they ceremoniously rip the clothing of the priest off of him. Okay. So he gets defrocked, but then things don't quite go according to plan. After he was defrocked, Vos yells out, I thank you, Lord, that you have liberated me from this false and hideous priesthood of which I was a member heretofore, that you are making me a priest of your holy order, receiving me as an acceptable sacrifice. So, a few days later, uh, they had an eyewitness account. There are several eyewitnesses account of everything that happened uh, on this. And one of them writes that Vos looked dignified, quiet, and gentle, and that he looked like a man who was inwardly praying and meditating. Uh, the entire thing took about an hour for this, this yes. particular, this defrocking ceremony. And after the defrocking, Vos was put in a yellow tunic to mock him, and then he was led back to the city hall. Right after that, the other two, Johannes Esch uh, and Lampertus Thorn, are then brought out. Thorn asked for four days to pray on whether he could recant. And Esch said he didn't need any time. He knew he couldn't recant. Esch was then ceremonially defrocked as... Uh, Heinrich had been, and then put into a black sinner's ground and led back to the city hall. 
So throughout all of this, Hoogstraten, the Inquisitor, is pleading with them to recant. And they refuse. Yeah. So he, he really, they, the, the Catholics really don't want to do that. I mean, of course, they, they've got to follow through on their threat, but they're really hoping these guys are going to break. Eventually. So they're, they're not going to recant. Right. And so you have two of them that aren't going to recant. The third one has asked for four days. Has asked for four days. That's Lampertus Thorn. Yes. So eventually the, the, so those two, uh, Heinrich Vos and, uh, Johannes Esch are led to the executioner who ties them up and leads them to the market to be burned. There were four father confessors who followed the two monks, uh, to be ready to hear these men's confession if at the last moment they decided to recant. Now, when they arrive at the marketplace, they were undressed, uh, undressed to their shirt, their undershirts and paced on the, on the pyre. Uh, now, one of the details of this is that the, the fire took unusually long time to burn, so the crowd had plenty of time to consider what was happening. The whole affair, uh, the parading out, the placing of them in their undershirts, being placed on the pyre, and the fire taking a long time to build and to grow to where it could do its work of killing these men, it left a lasting impression on the city. So one of the other uh, eyewitnesses wrote a few days later, he says, The two Augustinian monks suffered the terrible death of burning and unbelievable steadfastness and equanimity. The chancellor himself stated that he had never seen the like among the many who were condemned and executed during his tenure. Erasmus, who is from uh, Brussels, wrote about the events of that day as well. He says, In Brussels, two Augustinians were burned, following which the entire city became fond of Luther. In another letter, uh, Rasmus writes, In Brussels, three Augustinians were publicly executed. And what was the result? The city which heretofore had adhered to pure papal doctrine brought forth followers of Luther, and not only a few. Even so now this starts to give us a hint of what happened to Lampertus Thorne, who had asked for a four days delay. He was not executed on the same day, it would appear, as uh, Johannes Esch and Heinrich Vos. Uh, and there's not a clear description of the day he was executed, but Erasmus makes mention that three. Yeah, well, and Lampertus Thorne, actually, there, we'll get into it in a couple minutes here, but uh, he, I don't think he was ever executed, but he was, he, he, well, we'll get it. Is he like the Iron Mask Man? Sort of. Like the, the hidden twin of the king or something like that? No, he's not anything like that. But, uh, <laughs> what is, is, so Erasmus does make mention of three Augustinians publicly executed, uh, but a couple Lampert, of times. A couple times. But Lampertus Thorne, uh, well, we don't know. We, we don't, okay, we know he never recanted. So that's what we do know. We know he never recanted. And we know he wasn't immediately executed. And, and we know that Luther wrote to him in 1524 a letter of encouragement. Yeah, so he was still alive then. In 1524. The best guess is that he died in 1528 after living a few, those few years in just absolutely miserable conditions. And, uh, uh, John Pless writes in a book describing Luther's pastoral care. Um, he has a commentary in the letters that's exchanged between these men and writes about how Luther uh, demonstrates that in the end of this world's suffering, the only comfort we will have and the only comfort that is ultimately necessary for us to be able to sustain ourselves to the end is the comfort of the resurrection of all flesh on the last day. And so he writes to the man who is in the sorrow of approaching death, 
Not like, don't worry, it'll get better. You know, there's a silver lining. Uh, you'll get out eventually. Just keep praying harder and the blessings will come down. He doesn't, no doesn't prosperity do, gospel there. Not, none there. No. no. <laughs> yeah, he, he basically says, this is, this is all we've got is, is Christ's promises. The martyrdom of the two monks left a deep impression on Luther. He, he wrote, writes about it several times. And he wrote his first ballad, A New Song We Raise. Now, the interesting thing about this is A New Song We Raise, it's a, specifically a ballad. And I didn't realize, I think, uh, uh, in our, in our previous one, um, we, we talked about on the, the special Reformation Day, uh, episode where we talked about the hymnody. Mm-hmm. We talked about the, the different types of music and, and the ballads were actually written to be sung in the general public at like, maybe not. I don't so this know. wasn't a hymn for, for church, uh, for church, but this was a ballad that would, might be sung in the, the pub. Or something wherever, like or yeah, wherever. maybe while you were traveling, or you know, just to you know, but it was something to teach. So Luther wanted to give, uh, he wanted to thank God and praise Him for these two exemplars of loyalty and resolution that he, that God had given to His church. Um, Luther, second, okay, sorry, uh, second, Luther was angry at the rumors which were very quickly circulated by the enemies that uh, Henry and John had at the last moment given up their faith and their convictions, and had reconciled themselves with Rome. Yeah, he wanted to have, so he wanted some popular methodology to... Communicate the truth. Co- communicate the truth, uh, that these two ma- martyrs uh, did not, they, they, they never recanted. Um, and so he made use of the popular song, this, this ballad. And the, the ballads were printed on individual sheets of paper and sold pretty much everywhere. And then traveling singers sung them in markets, along roadsides, and in pubs, like you mentioned. And then the ballads made their way rapidly from city to city and were quickly learned by heart. Now, the the entire title is A New Song of the Two Martyrs of Christ Burned in Brussels by the Sophists of Louvain. It's an ode of thanking and praising God for the martyrdom of these two monks. And the tone of the new song is joyful and optimistic. Uh, and so here you've got a stanza that you're going to yeah, sing this... for us, right, Mike? <laughs> Let me pull out my lyre and hoop, uh, lute. And, no. I think we're going to skip the singing. But uh, the, it says, The first rightly fit John was named, so rich in God's favor, his brother Henry, one unblamed, whose salt lost not its savor. From this world they are gone away, the diadem they've gained. Honest, like God's good children, they for his word life disdained and have become his martyrs. So and then we have an update now on uh, Jacobus Propositus and the other monks in Antwerp. So after uh, Propositus admitted his errors, he was sent to the monastery in, how do you pronounce this? I don't know. Ypres? Belgium? Uh, and then he, while he's there, he once again becomes suspected of being a Lutheran. And he's arrested again in July of 1522, about the same time that the monks in Antwerp were arrested. And Propositus, uh, what happens to he, him? He escapes and then he, fl- he flees to Wittenberg in, uh, in 1523. And, uh, and then the rest of the monks... The um, rest of those monks that were told to recant or they were going to be burned, they had recanted. Yeah, that was in July of 1522. And they were allowed to return back to their monastery. But and then shortly afterward, they also started preaching Lutheranism again, that evangelical theology that we are saved by grace through faith in Christ and not by works of the law. So in September 1522, they burned the church. The, the church decides to close the monastery and deconsecrate it and destroy it. So they kept returning these monks back to the monastery. They kept preaching 
uh, Luther getting arrested. Uh, so finally, they're like, all right, enough of this. Let's just burn it down. <laughs> Let's just burn this place. The house, the house, the house. Is on fire. <laughs> yeah. And then after the release of the Edict of Worms and the Papal Bull of Desit Romanum in early 1521, the lines that are clearly being drawn and the sides that are being chosen between the Lutherans and Catholics demonstrate that these problems in Europe aren't just found among the Wittenberg theologians. In our next episode, we'll be taking a closer look at how the, the teachings of Thomas Munzer and the first followers of the Radical Reformation influenced the Peasants' War of 1524 and 1525. Uh, beware of the boot. There you go. Prost. We thank uh, Josh and we thank St. Paul Lutheran Church for the time they give to us to do this. Uh, some recognition of materials. Uh, James Kilson, Luther the former. Uh, CFW Walther, uh, Missouri Synod in formation, has some essays that are helpful about this. And Yeah, he actually spent a lot. I got a lot of the information from Walther on this one. He's the one who really did the write-up on, on, uh, on the history. story of the martyrs there. Yeah. And then THM Ackerboom, uh, Emmanuel University in Romania. Uh, contact us at graceontap.podcast at gmail.com. Uh, you can uh, let us know if you'd like to host a road trip. Uh, a road trip is where uh, we'll come to a brewery near you. You'll bring your men's group or whoever, and we'll have a night of uh, drinking some good, flavorful beers and talking about Lutheran history and Reformation theology. Yeah, if we don't have a road trip soon, we might just have to go out and do some beer drinking on the road, just the two of us. So uh, the next one is, uh, Grace, you can catch but us But not on, our... on the road itself. <laughs> no, 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 no. No, at, at a brewery. At the place. We'll take a road trip to there. <laughs> we'll take a road trip to there. Uh, you can catch us on our on our uh, website at graceontap-podcast.com or on Facebook at graceontappodcast. We'd appreciate any reviews. You can post on iTunes and help get the word out and share with people uh, about how God's grace indeed is on tap flowing wide and open with the promises of God's word. <laughs>